Welcome back, one and all, to another episode of the Hiccups in History podcast. Man, getting a master's degree, teaching job, and moving sure takes a lot of time. But I'm back now, and we can return to our regularly scheduled chaos. Uh, first order of business, I have a question for all of you. How many of you are sports fans? I am. Exactly. Many of Wait, how did you get in here? I climbed out of your files, Trey. I'm owed a bigger role in this episode, remember? I did say that, didn't I? Well, until I can figure out how to banish you again, I guess I'm stuck with you. You want to learn about the time sports fans nearly brought down an empire? I'm deeply concerned, yet intrigued. Excellent. That is the perfect state of mind to be in when learning history. Now grab a seat and your foam fingers, and let's get ready to rumble! This historical hiccup takes place in January of 532 CE in the capital of the Byzantine Empire, Constantinople. Modern-day Istanbul, which was Constantinople, but is now Istanbul. And as we all know, we can't go back to Constantinople. Wait, Trey, why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks. <laughs> At this time in history, the Empire was thoroughly Christian, and as such, the old gladiatorial games have been outlawed for something like 200 years? Ugh, lame. Lame as it may be, the Roman people had a substitute to satisfy their bloodlust and sporting frenzy. Chariot racing. How was that any better? So, you know how basically people only watch NASCAR to see the crashes? Is that really where the appeal comes from? As I understand it, yes. People claim otherwise, but they're lying. Anyway, chariot racing is basically that, but all the time. Instead of potential crashes, maybe once in a blue moon, you could expect to see a chariot crash happen every race. And often, because of how the chariots were built, one chariot crash would swiftly become five or six crashes, piling up in a amalgamation of metal, wood, man, and horse. Ew. At this time in history, chariot racing was broken down into what are called deems which were a catch-all term for what we would today call sports franchises, if the franchise also dealt in chariot racing, political agitation, racketeering, and community outreach services, like being the district fire brigade. I mean, two of those sort of check out. <laughs> These deems were broken down into four colors, the whites, the greens, the blues, and the reds. Historically speaking, each of these deems held sway in different regions, but practically speaking, by the time of this event, the two main factions were the Blues and the Greens. What makes them so special? Well, having the Emperor and his Empress back one of you can't hurt. And much like modern sports teams, some teams just hold sway over a given sport for a time. I mean, look at Tom Brady and the Patriots, for an example. Point taken. These two factions were basically what happens when you take the violent, diehard attitudes of modern soccer-slash-football hooligans and mix them together with the political ideologies of the American political system. What comes out is two factions with powerful political backers and street gangs to battle it out on the ground level. I'm horrified. <laughs> and as I said before, the emperor at the time, the absolute legend Emperor Justinian I, and his even more legendary wife, Theodora, were avid fans of the blues. I'm guessing that favoritism would lead to some... problems? You would be right and also wrong. The favoritism itself wasn't the issue. Many emperors had favored different teams. But Justinian's favoritism would lead to him often providing protection against prosecution for his team, which would lead to them being emboldened, and that boldness would indeed lead to troubles, which we will soon see. Makes sense. 
Justinian I, to set the scene a little, inherited the throne from his uncle and adopted father, Justin I, who had taken the throne after the emperor Anastasius died. Justin and Justinian were from peasant stock and only rose to power because Justin was a good soldier and eventually became the head of the imperial bodyguard. These humble origins, coupled with the fact that Empress Theodora was a former actress, would lead to many senators and nobles not liking the emperor very much. But I'm sure the common folk admired them, no? It's a bit unclear what the common folk thought of him since we don't have records from them, just the elites, who were not overly fond of the lowborn emperor and empress. Alone, this issue would be a problem, but Justinian was also a man of ambition. He sought to rebuild the Roman Empire once more, reconquer the West, and retake Rome for the Romans. To do this, he brought in a group of men to help him first reform the empire and then extend it. The first person he brought in was the general Belisarius, a man who does not get the credit he deserves. Next, he brought in Narses, a eunuch. This man was a decent commander, but an even better political agent and treasury manager. And an impressive soprano, no doubt. And probably one of the origins of the old conniving eunuch trope we see in literature and film today. Meanwhile, the other two men he brought in were good choices, but unpopular ones, and would help to bring about the riot to come. Oh, please do tell. The first man was named Trebonian, a man who was, by all accounts, a legal god amongst men, and was tasked with untangling the mess that was the Roman legal system. Trebonian was the perfect man for the job. He was able to untangle the Roman legal web and help Justinian himself finally codify the laws of the Romans into the Corpus Juris Civilis. God bless you. Thank you. And this Herculean legal feat was a real plus for this guy. Unfortunately, he was thoroughly corrupt and an unabashed pagan, which the thoroughly Christian citizens of Constantinople didn't like all that much. So what made him perfect for the job if he was so corrupt? Sometimes the person who knows the law the best is the one who can abuse it. I... I, I just... The last man Justinian brought in was a man named John the Cappadocian, which, if I'm being honest, just sounds like a mobster name, you know? He was tasked with restructuring the tax system so that Justinian would have enough money to reconquer Rome. John was an amazing tax man, which also meant that he was horribly corrupt, horribly decadent, and extremely unpopular. But he got the money that Justinian needed, so good with the bad? I'm beginning to see a pattern with these guys. Every single one of these guys was a double-edged sword. Kind of had to take the good with the bad when it came to running an empire, and these are the only swords you had to wield, you know? So, let's take a tally of the situation. You have the low-born emperor, Justinian, his former actress wife, the horribly corrupt tax man, the pagan lawman, a eunuch, and a good but at the time disgraced general. Not really looking too good in the public relations department. Well, yeah. Oh, he was so fixated on dumb things like justice and taxes that he didn't think to hire a good PR team. Justinian was a man of ambition, but also single-minded focus, which, much like his ministers, was a double-edged sword. Yikes. Yikes indeed. With the pre-show out of the way, let us dive right into the main event. We set the scene. January 532. Constantinople, an average day for the citizens of the greatest city in the world. Until...
members of the Greens and Blues faction in the city were arrested for taking part in several violent crimes and were sentenced to death. The day after the arrests and sentencing, the Emperor and the Empress attended the chariot races, as usual, but there was tension in the air. Slowly, a chant rose amongst the crowd, a call for the release of the arrested leaders. Seeing the danger around him, Justinian made an announcement and said he would not execute the leaders, but merely imprison them. That dude folded way too quickly. Well, when staring down the gun barrel of thirty to 60,000 very angry people all in the same room as you, you'd fold pretty quickly too. I know I would. The crowd grew silent once more, and Justinian thought he had solved the problem. But the silence was not one of capitulation or satisfaction, but instead one of simmering rage. Oh gee, I wonder what happened next. Your sarcastic intuition is spot on. As the races went on, a new chant rose up. One word, backed by the rage of thousands. Nika! 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 Trey, what does Nika mean? Well, Conrad, Nika is the Greek word meaning victory, and was often used by the chariot fans to cheer on their racers. And this is why you should never attempt to placate a bloodthirsty mob. Well, the crowd became violent and tried to storm the Imperial viewing box. Luckily, the Emperor's guards were able to escort the Imperials out a back door and back to the palace. The riots themselves soon spread out of the Hippodrome and into the rest of the city. Like an average American reaction to the Super Bowl. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Now, riots in Roman capital cities is nothing new. But what made this one a bit different was the fact that it was kind of organized. Thanks to the leadership structures of the different chariot factions working together, they were able to affect a sort of controlled chaos on the riot. Now, it was still a riot, and there was utter bedlam in the streets. But when guards went to quell the riot, the chariot factions were able to, on the ground level at least, organize the rioters into a sort of fighting force that could ambush and attack the guard units. It also didn't help that a chunk of the guards were loyal to the greens and blues. So they joined in and helped the rioters, so a lot of times it was guard unit on guard unit fighting. Was there a single person in the government that wasn't corrupt? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, the rioters had surrounded the Imperial Palace, burned down the original Hagia Sophia, and pretty much taken control of the entire city. Justinian, at this point, was a complete mess and was paranoid that this riot was planned. So he banished the Imperial Senate from the Imperial Palace, forcing them to flee to their respective villas and estates. I'm guessing he didn't want to get chopped into a Caesar salad. Ah! Uh, <laughs> indeed. He, Justinian was one thing. He was a student of history, and so he didn't want to see that part repeated. One of those senators was named Flavius Hypatius, who was the nephew of the Emperor Anastasius I. Anastasius, if you remember, was the emperor who came before Justin, who was the emperor that came before Justinian. To make a very long story short, lots of people didn't like that Justin was made emperor by Anastasius over other royal members of the family. So, Hypatius is held up in his estate, just trying to ride out the storm, when a group of rioters break down his door and drag him into the streets. Now, at this point, the dude is probably thinking he's toast, but... Then a strange thing happened. But before we get into that strange thing, I need to talk about sources. Ugh. Come on, man. We all know context is key. 
You see, the main source we have for this time is a man named Procopius. He was a historian of the time who was basically acting as an eyewitness account for a ton of events, and for years his records were seen as the definitive source for this time period. I guess he wrote a Procopius amount of stuff? I actually do think that's where we get the word. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah. Uh, however, one day, someone discovered a book written by Procopius which details an alternate timeline of events. Beg your pardon? Yeah. This alternate history paints a very different picture of the people taking part in the events. Theodora becomes an evil witch puppeteering her weak-willed and vile husband on the throne. Stuff like that. Cringe, cucked, Justinian. You hit the nail on the head. That is exactly the picture that Procopius was trying to paint in this alternate history. Now, historians have come to the consensus that Procopius was a smart man and basically hedged his bets and wrote this alternate history as a sort of backup plan in case of, you know, sudden regime changes. I mean, I guess I can't blame the guy. Regardless, between Procopius's two histories and other sources, the motives of many people become hard to pin down during events like this. So it could have just been the perfect storm of political zealots and opportunistic anarchists, right? Pretty much. Oftentimes, those two types of forces act at the same time, but independently of one another. They just kind of end up merging. I tell you all of this to say that when Hypatius was dragged from his home, instead of being torn limb from limb, he was instead given a crown and named emperor by the crowd. Oh? Now, where the sources come into play is that some sources say Hypatius is totally an innocent bystander in all of this. The guy was just trying to lay low, but the crowd forced him into this and he had to play along or be killed. Scandal! Other sources say that he was one of the masterminds behind the whole riot and was using this as a chance to take the throne he believed was rightfully his. Drama! And other sources, which I tend to believe, say that he was forced out of his home and given the crown, and over the course of the riot, he kind of came around to the idea that he actually could be emperor. Like, well, if the people want me to be emperor, who am I to say no? Well, that didn't take much convincing. How much convincing would it take for you to get behind the idea of ruling the most powerful and wealthy empire in the world? I think we just established how corrupt the entire empire was. I'm good. <laughs> you sure? There's a mob outside that wants to make you emperor. Nuh-uh, nuh, -uh, nuh -uh. <laughs> So the city burned for five days, and Justinian planned to flee the city and risk losing the throne to save their lives. But his wife stopped him and supposedly said to her husband, It is impossible for a person, having been born into this world, not to die. But for one who has reigned, it is intolerable to be a fugitive. May I never be deprived of this purple robe, and may I never see the day that those I meet not call me empress. Get you a woman! Based, <laughs> Theodora. Like her or not, none can deny that Theodora was a badass. Shamed into staying, Justinian looked for an alternative solution and found his salvation in the recently arrived General Belisarius. General Belisarius, another general named Mundus, and the eunuch advisor Narses came up with a plan to end the riots. Narses went out and started spreading the money around and basically bribed a bunch of the leaders of the blue faction to just go home. And this worked to undercut the power and cohesion of the rioters. Was that really all it took? 
As the man once said, money talks. Next, Belisarius and Mundus tried to march on the Hippodrome, where the bulk of the rioters and Hypatius himself were holed up. But their way was blocked by some guards, those same guard units who were loyal to the Greens and Blues and not fully loyal to the Emperor. So Belisarius looked at the guards, and then at his army, and then back at the guards, and killed them all. This is literally a deus ex machina moment. It really is, and given the fact that these Romans were basically Greeks as well, I'm sure they really appreciated that. After killing the guards, Belisarius and Mundus marched into the Hippodrome and killed somewhere between 30 and 60,000 rioters. Bro, thousand? Thousands. It helps that most were either unarmed or lightly armed, but yes, thousands. And funnily enough, this was not the first time an emperor had killed thousands in a hippodrome. Anyway. Awkward. Hypatius was arrested and executed. Some sources say Justinian ordered him killed. Others say Justinian wanted to spare him, but Theodora convinced Justinian to kill him. Regardless, Hypatius, emperor for five days, was executed. That's actually so sad. Especially if you subscribe to the version of history that paints him as just an innocent man dragged into everything. But to be fair to Justinian, he couldn't risk having a potential usurper in his court. Oh yeah, not more corruption. There's only so much corruption one man can take. And with Hypatius dead, the rioters slaughtered, and the city mostly burned to the ground, thus ended the Nika riots. Wow, Trey. I sure am glad I stuck around for that absolutely ridiculous story in history. What's next? Huh, that's a good question. Have you ever heard of the Defenestrations of Prague? This has been a Hiccups in History podcast. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show.